Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Talk Racing to Me with Naomi. What can I share with you about this week's special guest? Well, he's someone I'm very excited to have on the show due to his decades of experience within the horse racing industry. He is widely regarded as one, if not the best horse racing broadcaster we have in the USA. I worked with him at the New York Racing Association and it has always been a pleasure. His razor sharp memory allows us to learn about the practice of broadcasting horse racing over the last few decades. And he does take us back a few years, recalling the surreal moment that I'll have another scratched from the 2012 Belmont Stakes, as well as his initial thought when American Pharaoh crossed the wire to end a 37 year triple crown drought. Now, he's convinced Kentucky Derby Day is about 42 hours long and also makes the argument that a great jockey doesn't necessarily has to be a great horseman. I am, of course, talking about Lafitte Pinkeye III, son of Hall of Fame legendary jockey Lafitte Pinkeye Jr., Lafitte started out at a local news channel in the Bronx, New York, and is now the main man for the NBC Sports Triple Crown coverage, as well as host during Fox Sports nationwide horse racing shows in conjunction with the New York Racing Association. Due to social distancing measures, we are having this conversation remotely with Lafitte based in LA, California, and me here in Maryland. Bear with us if the quality of sound isn't as splendid as when recorded face-to-face, but I can guarantee you that the conversation lives up to the mark. Lafitte, thank you for coming on this show. I hope you and your family are able to stay safe and well during these challenging times. Yeah, thanks, Naomi. Um, Everybody's hunkered down and, and safe and healthy. I guess that's the most, obviously the most important thing I think for everybody that, um, you know, if you run out of things to do, you get a little bit bored. Well, that's the best case scenario, right? You know, if you're, if you're simply getting a little cabin fever, that's completely understandable. But yeah, thanks for asking everybody on my end is, is good. You've, build up quite the resume within the broadcasting sphere of the horse racing industry. And I would like to sort of take you back to a few of the key moments within your career and allow you to enlighten me and the listeners uh, to elaborate on the events in question. And I want to start at the beginning. How did you get into sports broadcasting? Now, I remember you telling me that you wanted to become a professional athlete a baseball player, if I'm correct, and that you were a southpaw, a left-handed pitcher. What happened? <laughs> I uh, I the I stopped like improving. I reached my ceiling as far as ability. I topped out, you know, at, like as like a junior in high school. I, I was a good pitcher. I was, and I loved baseball. Um, I think that you know. Being a, a son of a jockey, that was not that riding was ever a possibility. It wasn't ever an interest, and it probably wouldn't have been something my father would have let me do, even if I wanted to. Same with my sister. My sister wanted to go like gallop and exercise horses, and he wouldn't let her. He was protective that way. But as it, like I was, I was athletic, but I was too big to be a rider. Again, not that that was ever a possibility, but like too small to do anything else. 
So the, 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 every kid grows up wanting to play, you know, center field for the Yankees, being a pitcher for the Dodgers, you know, playing point guard for the Bulls. It's not realistic. Um, and at some point I recognize that, yeah, I, I do want to be involved with sports, but I know that, you know, actively playing them is not going to happen beyond high school. <laughs> so how did you get the idea to get into broadcasting instead? Because that's quite a sort of different path compared to becoming a professional athlete or even riding horses. You know, I think that when I would watch sports as a kid, as much sports as I would watch, I recognized that the way a game was presented, the way it was portrayed to the viewer, um, would make the event seem more special. It would make it seem bigger. When you know, I was a huge Dodger fan growing up and I would watch the local coverage of the baseball games and it was, it was great. But then there was a nationally televised baseball game every week on Saturdays on NBC called NBC's. It was the, the game of the week, national game of the week. And Bob Costas would be on it and Joe Garagiola would be on it and Vince Scully once in a while. And even though you were watching the same game, it seemed bigger. And I recognized at that point that the way an event was portrayed to the viewer through the magic of television, um, it could you, you could convey that event that much better with the way it was produced through television. Your first time appearing on TV was, correct me if I'm wrong, a TV show called Inside LA. How did that come about? And describe the initial feeling. Who were you where, working with and what were you covering? Where did you find that? That tidbit, where did you get that? <laughs> Let's just say I'm a good researcher. <laughs> yeah, you know, forensic, you know, attorneys would not have been able to normally. Yeah, it was a magazine style show. I was like 19, maybe 20. A friend of mine was producing this like out of his, you know, he was, he had, he bought editing equipment that he had in his living room and he started going to these different locations in LA, restaurants, um, nightclubs, uh, God, where else did we go? Um, anything in entertaining as far as things to do on weekends, hotspots in LA, it was being aired on like public access and we would go to these places and he would, you know, he would video what was shooting, what was going on at these different locations. And then I would just do the wraparound stuff like, Hey, you need to go try this new restaurant or, Oh, you're bored on a Saturday night. Got to see this new nightclub, whatever. Um, it was God awful. It was, you know, terrible. I, I don't even know if that I was, you know, compensated, you know, monetarily for it, but it was like the first reps ever on television. And if anybody ever like digs up any of those tapes, like I will like murder. <laughs> Well, rest assured, I haven't found the tapes. I just uh, found out you, that that was... Good, though, would be you. <laughs> so you were promoting nightclubs instead of the Triple Crown. Yeah. So the natural segue was horse racing, right? Yeah. It was anything. Anybody, who, again, is my friend being the producer. And it, it could be a dry cleaner. Like, we started running out of local spots. I'm like, I'm really going to tell... You know, these random people like, hey, you got to come over and, you know, check out this place. It'll, you know, fix your dishwasher that just broke. It was it was pretty bad. It was at one point we ran out of places to go. And yeah, anybody who will write this guy, you know, a check to promote their place of business is what I was promoting, essentially. Did that seal the deal in your mind? You were going to become a TV presenter. Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, it was, uh, again, the very first, very first reps as far as doing anything in front, in front of a camera. 
And it was probably two years after that that I got my first like a real job at a network uh, at a very small, small, small station in New York owned by the Dolans and Cablevision uh, News 12. Uh, there were a bunch of them. At the time, there were five News 12 in New York, in, in, in throughout New York and New Jersey. And now it's spread. And I think there's several more. It's, it's really localized. And it was uh, out of the Bronx. News 12 in the Bronx was my first, my first job in my early 20s. How did you land that job? Um, I was in school. They were looking for young, inexperienced, cheap, 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 on-air personnel that they could also have do, like, it was a one-man band. I was on-air, yeah, sure, it sounds great. Uh, my first job in New York City. Well, you're not in Manhattan, actually. You're doing this out of out of the Bronx, and in a rougher part of the Bronx. Um, you don't have a cameraman, so you're going to be shooting all of your own material. You're going to be lugging around a tripod. You're going to be doing your own editing. You're your own segment producer. You're your own producer. It was a one man band for next to nothing, but it was a chance to be on air. So I, I, I took it and, um, you know, turned out to be like the best decision ever because part of that was not just learning what to do in front of a camera, but appreciating everything else that goes on behind the scenes. So I learned it later on during the course of my career that like when you're on set and things go wrong and technically something happens, there's an instinct to get very frustrated. If you've worked both sides of the camera, you know that everybody's doing everything they possibly can to put this production together and doing their best job. And you have a lot more patience having been there, having been there yourself. How long did you work with News 12? It was also, it was sports then. Okay. Um, I was there close to three years. And um, after I, uh, I, I came home in late, it was right around 2000 or so. And um, I, I knew, I always knew it, that I wanted to do sports in, in some capacity and that, um, of course, it was football, baseball, basketball of all the mainstream sports that I grew up following. But as I've said many times, when you're born in thoroughbred racing, like it's trying to get out of the mob. Like you think you're out of the sport. No, it, it's, it brings you back in. You always wind up in the game, which turned out to be the best thing possible because it's, it's an amazing, as you know, Naomi, it's an incredible industry to work within. And um, yeah, I wound up uh, back in racing and, and working in television. Um, shortly, shortly thereafter, and that's and that's and really haven't looked back since. And having sort of just discussed the origin of your career, would you say that moving from California to New York would have been the biggest game changer for you career-wise, or has there been any other moments that you say I've put everything on the line? This has changed everything. No, yeah, I don't think I, I don't know that I'm doing what I'm doing now had I not gone to New York, even though it was. You know, it was there was it, it felt like a, a grad school as far as it. I stayed in school for broadcast journalism. It was like a crash course in that regard and just learning about every aspect of television that I didn't know before. I knew I was, you know, as far as again, it's one thing to understand what it is to do in front of a camera. It's another to understand everything else that goes into putting together a television production. But going there and recognizing that, you know, after I, cause I was just morbidly god awful when I first started, but seeing like a little bit of improvement, like, wow, I can, you know, maybe I can get a little bit better and the more reps and you get a little bit more comfortable. And it's a, it's a, it's a process and there's no way to improve without getting the reps. So the best thing about News 12 in the Bronx in that period was just the reps and the, 
experience and, and slowly, slowly, slowly improving. Again, I don't, I don't, who knows? I don't know what I would have wound up doing had I not had that initial opportunity. Was there ever any doubt in your mind? Did I make the right decision to go into this field? Yeah, I had like that doubt yesterday. <laughs> you have, of course, there's going to be that you're going to, you wonder when you're first starting because there are some people that you look up to that make that job, that make this job look so easy. And those are the most naturally gifted, talented people. They make something very hard look very easy. And to the extent that somebody sitting at home says, I could do that. Look at how easy, you know, how hard could it possibly be until you sit there and try and do it. And then you're like, my God, this is, this is, this isn't easy. Um, maintaining focus and the bright lights and someone in your ear and maintaining a conversation with the person next to you and maintaining a conversation with somebody who's not communicating back with you, the viewer, all of it, that the best, that the most talented people make look so easy when you actually try it and stumble and stumble and stumble. That's when I'm thinking like, I don't know if I can do this. And it's a matter of just practice and practice and, and in your own mind, believing that you can do it. Um, cause obviously you can in that regard be like your own worst enemy when you start to think that this is something that you don't know if you're ever going to improve enough to make, to be good enough to make a profession out of it, to make a serious, to make that, to be your, to be your career. Were there any times within your career that there've been professional setbacks that you might have to draw on that mental sort of capacity to tell yourself that you're going to be okay or you're good enough to do what you're currently doing? There was a huge transition from taped to live. Like now, I, I'd rather do everything live. When something's taped, there's subconsciously a pressure to make it perfect because you can always do it again. It can always be better, even at its very best. It can still get better. So you could drive yourself absolutely nuts trying to make something too perfect and normally it's going to feel like manufactured and automated and whatever. Like live for me now is, is much more comforting because whatever happens, happens, it's gone and, and you move forward. Um, but all the experience in New York, everything was taped. I wasn't live in the studio. I was a reporter out in the field. We didn't have live capability. You know, I would like set up my little tripod and I would focus on my microphone on the ground and then I go stand there after hitting record and go back into the viewfinder and see if I was framed. And then I hope that I remember to white balance and all this just to do a simple stand up. And but that's what I got used to. And I would take like nine million takes and then try to pick the best one. Um, when I had my first opportunity of doing live television, I'm like, oh, like this is <laughs> this is I got really nervous. Uh, you felt a lot more pressure. And as you know, with, with anxiety, your thinking isn't as clear. You're just not as present. Nothing is fluid. And when you're live and it sucks and you know it sucks, like there's no worse feeling in the world. So my first adjusting to live television was, was that, that was the hardest. I'm pretty sure we can all agree. You've done a phenomenal job so far. Uh, you've been doing really great here enlightening us sort of what goes on behind the scenes and I want to kind of continue down that road. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you mind taking us 
what goes into preparing for a big race day? What do you do at home? But as well, what goes on in production meetings, which are held behind closed door? Most of us will never attend those and know how much work is involved behind the scenes. You kind of alluded to it already a little bit, but I'd love to sort of explain a little bit more to the listeners, you know, the process that's involved, demystifying it. Yeah, the production meetings, and it depends. This is the biggest difference between the broadcast that we work on for the New York Racing Association and the Fox shows versus NBC. The NBC work um, will, it, it, let's say I'm traveling for a race on a Saturday and I get in on Wednesday and we have a production meeting, you know, Thursday, Friday, and the show Saturday. You have all that time to prepare for maybe an hour show. So you can go through everything with a fine tooth comb and dot every I and cross every T. And to an extent that you're so prepared, you almost, you know, you without looking at the rundown, you almost it's 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 basically memorized every part of the show because you've gone over it time and time again. The production that we work on for Naira and the Fox shows in Saratoga, for example, you're talking about three hour shows every day um, that that rundown. And, and it's incredible the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes at Naira for the Fox shows. I mean, what everybody does as individuals to pull that off is nothing short of a miracle. That was incredible. So I was like, how are these guys going to do it? And somehow, and you were part of that team, Naomi, you guys, you pulled it off. And I was so proud of the work that we, that we did this past summer at Saratoga and, and continue to do with, uh, with America's uh, Day of the Races. But it's very different in that you get off the air, you get home. You have dinner and you're waiting to run down might get there very late at night or the following morning. And it, you don't have all that time to prepare. So more of it is done on the fly and you have to really pick your spots of where you're going to spend your time preparing so as to feel that you're ready for the show. You don't want to be doing any on, anything on the show on the fly. You know, whether you're familiarizing yourself with the rundown, you know, preparing how to throw to certain elements in the show. Do you spend more time on the horses, the handicapping aspect? Um, I found that that was the biggest challenge with less time, how to prepare for a three hour show with a much smaller window as opposed to having a week for a one hour show. Um, that's the biggest difference for those, for those two different, uh, different, uh, productions. Um, and the production meetings is if they're huddles, everybody huddling up, maximizing potential, you know, bouncing storylines off the off of each other and, um, and and trying to get on the same page. So you're conveying the same message, telling the same story uh, to the viewer to make the show as entertaining and as good as possible. When applying everything that you've just mentioned, for instance, to an event like a possible triple crown victory, such as during the 2015 Belmont Stakes, 2018 Belmont Stakes, where both American Pharaoh and Justify made history, what is the difference in preparation as well as atmosphere of the crew? Is there a lot of pressure? I think, well, I'll take you back to I'll have another bidding for a Triple Crown in 2012. And we had just had our last major meeting on Friday, the day before I'll have another's race. And I don't know what it was, but felt really good about what we were about to do, about my my own preparation because I'm, I'm, you know, was hosting the shows on NBCSN and then reporting on NBC. And, you know, I, I'm somebody, I don't ever quite feel like I'm totally prepared. Um, and I, I can sometimes even tend to like over prepare, but I, I always feel like there's more, there's more to do. And, and there was something I was just really comfortable with the content, with everything, just 
felt really good getting ready for what might be history in front of millions and millions and millions of people. We just finished a meeting. I had left the trailer and I don't remember who it was that, that got my attention and said, I go, go back to the trailer. There's there. Everybody's reconvening. They like closed the doors, very hush hush. And we're like, what's being said here can't be repeated. Um, but I'll have another that's going to scratch. And it was like, somebody just kicked you in the stomach. Um, Air let out of the room and, and they were, you know, the connections of I'll have another were, were gracious enough to give us a heads up knowing what had gone into that production so that we can start to, to, you know, audible and change direction. What, what do we do now for three hours tomorrow? Um, and the look on everybody's faces and understanding what opportunity had just flown out the window, but still like now what, um, that was the most, one of the most surreal moments in my, in my professional career was the atmosphere in that trailer on that particular afternoon. Uh, fast forward to American Pharaoh and justify the it's, it's, I don't, it's excitement. It's, it's a tension. Yes. But the good kind of tension, the type that you're just, that keeps you on edge and a little bit sharper, not necessarily just nervous. You're so excited to tell this story to tens of millions of people that don't normally watch horse racing. And, you know, for American Pharaoh, it was, you know, what the price of gas was back in 1978 and who was in office. And they showed like, even for California Chrome, they showed pictures of what we looked like the last time there was a triple crown winner. You know, it's like my, you know, my kindergarten picture there. Um, it was, it was great. It was different with Justified because we had already seen American Pharaoh, but um, really, really exciting. Of course there's nerves. Of course there's pressure. You want to be at your very best. Um, but those are, you know, you're documenting live history and, um, you know, something I will never forget being a part of and certainly two of the highlights of my career being part of those productions. You mentioned American Pharaoh. I actually wanted to bring him up because I'm hoping you could share with us what was the image that stayed with you from the moment that he made history winning the Triple Crown? What was the celebration like, the atmosphere what happens the moment he crosses the finish line for you guys as a production team as well as being on air? At first, it's like, yeah, put your phones away. Put your phones away. Like, have, a, have an experience for yourself and look at it with your own eyeballs. You're here in New York. You're at the Belmont Stakes. There was a Triple Crown winner. You're looking. You might as well be home watching on TV. Like, take it in for yourself. Put your phone away. That's my first thought. Um there was, it was, um, like experiencing after big Brown ran last in 2008 and after flipping, you know, I'll have another scratched the day before the Belmont in his triple crown bid. You started to think, you know, we're further away from seeing a triple, like this is never going to happen. The conversation was let's, we have to make this easier. How can we make a triple crown easier? There's no way a horse can win three races in five weeks. Even when it happened, like, can I believe my eyes? It was, can I believe my eyes? Um, I wasn't, like, jumping up and down in hysteria. I was trying to soak everything all in. I was watching Victor celebrate. I was watching, because in the stride before the wire, American Pharaoh, so he's not, you still haven't seen the Triple Crown winner in 30 so The next stride after the wire, there he is. Now he's a Triple Crown winner. This is legendary. And the energy and the electricity from the crowd um, is like nothing I've ever, uh, nothing, nothing I've ever felt. I've been to some great sporting events and maybe I'm biased because I love horse racing, but I've never felt 
what I felt on that particular afternoon. One of my favorite stories is, and I'll try to give you the broad strokes, was, I don't know, like 45 minutes earlier, there were these two dudes and a girl. And I was up, I, I watched the race next with, with Eddie Olchek, and um, it was, there's like a next to the winter circle at Belmont Park where the vet watches the races from up, up on one of those like stands there. And I heard like what sounded like the starting of an argument uh, between two guys. And apparently one guy thought another guy's was looking at his girl. And they, you know, this is like five o'clock in the evening. You can tell they're pretty fueled up by this point. They probably got there at 10 in the morning and they've been, you know, whatever. And it's starting to get like loud. It's like, yeah, oh, good. The horses are going to come out of the tunnel. There's 20 million people watching post parade America fairly two dudes like crawling, you know, right behind all of this. At some point, you know, everybody settles down. It's a little bit of a skirt. Nothing happens. Like nothing happens. Hold on. You didn't jump in between. You big, these are big dudes. All right. Like, what am I going to do? And I do that. This is, and they were in plain sight and you don't like, you're, you're like, I noticed this happening, but you're not consciously paying attention to it. You're paying attention to everything else. I specifically remember during the course of this celebration, I don't remember if it was 30 seconds after the race or five minutes after the race, my, for some reason, my, in my peripheral vision, I looked down in that same direction and these same two guys that were about ready to rip each other's heads off like 40 minutes ago are like embracing and like jumping up and down together, celebrating this moment. Like that's one of the images that comes to mind. That's how everybody at once recognizing and enjoying something that we did, thought we might never see again. And once it happened, it was everything, you know, you thought it would be. It was amazing. You mentioned Eddie Olchek and you've worked with some of the greats of sporting industry, sporting broadcast over the years. Who would have been a standout? And what is your favorite memory in relation to them? Bob Costas. This is a... You know, somebody who I had before I even knew what I wanted to do, somebody who you'd see on television and just marvel at how incredibly talented, intelligent, um, poised in the biggest moments and how many different sports he, he does. And whether it was play by play, whether it was reporting, whether it was a, he like does it all and does it all. He's one of those people. It's like, oh, he makes it look so easy. And I think recognizing the first time I was going to be on a broadcast with him was like, that was intimidating. And like the first night and I had any night when I had met him and then you get beyond it just being Bob in that. And then he's just to, you know, you kind of get over that and having a conversation, spending some time with him. We just, all we would do is talk, talk baseball, not, we just talk baseball constantly. And, um, you know, him and he would treat you like an equal and treat you, um, there was never, there was never any sense of, of discomfort in that regard. And it was, I always really look forward to seeing him and, and, and working with him during the years that we, that we worked together on triple crowns. Um, but yeah, that I, I would say working with him, recognizing that, wow, you're going to be on the same stage, the same platform as this television icon. That was a little, <laughs> that was a little overwhelming at first. As far as the diversity of his career goes, is that something you would aspire to as well? Yeah, Naomi, of course. I've, I've um, absolutely wanted to, to cover other sporting events. Um, 
uh, baseball, football are, are my, my, you know, passions aside from horse racing. And, um, there's, you know, uh, it's something I still very much look forward to having the opportunity to, to cover and, and work and do at some point. Um, I haven't had a chance to do so, uh, yet, but you know, as, as much as I love thoroughbred racing and I, for me, it's the big Saturdays, it's the big events, you know, walking into a racetrack on a big day, the energy, there's nothing like it. I'm always going to want to be involved in this sport and look forward to continue to, to work in racing and am very much fulfilled, but sure, I'd love to, I'd love to give other sports a shot at some point. Walking in on a big race day, I'm assuming it's going to take a while for you to get to the studio. Are there a lot of people stopping you and wanting to ask you about you or perhaps your father even? Everybody wants to know how dad is. Absolutely. How's dad? What's he doing? How much, how much, how you people want to know how much weight he's put on. We haven't seen him. They just assume a jockey is like, you know, like twice the size that, you know, they used to be, uh, from the time when they retired and dad's still very much, he's still very fit, very active in case you're wondering. Uh, everybody wants to know like how's dad. And then, you know, a question about today's races or the big storylines or do you like a favorite or who do you like? I'm not much of a handicapper, so don't bother. Um, but but yeah, that's it's always and I love because this um, you can tell real racetrack fans there is no BSing like this is a different language that we speak. And if you try to fake it, it's very transparent. It's almost like. Like I speak Spanish, but if I'm having a conversation with someone whose first language is Spanish, they're going to know Spanish is my second language. You know what I'm saying? And in a conversation with a horse racing fan, it's very quick. Like, okay, you know what you're talking about or you don't. So you don't try to BS a horse racing fan. And I think that's something that jumps out when I'm specifically at Saratoga. What a, just such an incredibly passionate, loyal fan base. And I've noticed on several occasions walking to a set being asked about a horse, I'll give a response, and then I'll be told like five reasons why I'm wrong. <laughs> like, damn, you should be on the show, you know? Or take another look, you're like, damn, this guy's right. You know, the level, it's almost like being at a Yankee game and listening to conversations at a Yankee game amongst the fans, just very intuitive, very sharp, very knowledgeable baseball fans. That was the feel of an entire, you know, being at an entire meet at Saratoga and loving that interaction, you know, with real racing fans. And not that, and look at every racetrack, there's big, huge racing fans all over the country. That was just something that happened to jump out at me the first time I visited Saratoga and every time I've been back since. I'll be honest, do you use any of the information that someone like the person that came up to you provided you with? Did you use that on the show or do you ever, you know, take that yeah. into consideration? If somebody says something that jumps out at you like, wow, that's really interesting. I'll give it another look. Absolutely. Why not? You don't, there is so much. Every horse has a story, every horse. And it's not just what you see on paper. It's not, you know, you can't just regurgitate a racing form. If there's, if you can, Whatever the – you can give credit to the – I don't care. I'll be the first to say, you know what? That woman over there told me to take another look at a track bias that we may have missed in preparing for this race. Whatever it may be. Um, absolutely. No question. After a big race win, uh, depending on your role that day as a broadcaster, but quite often you would be the first person – to speak with the owners, trainers, and jockeys, capturing that elation, that moment. But this can also be 
an emotional event. Uh, for instance, when you spoke with Hall of Fame trainer Bob Bafford after he earned his first career victory in the 2019 Whitney Stakes of Saratoga with McKinsey, what does that do to you and how do you respond and support someone who becomes quite emotional on live television? Really tricky. And you have to really be able to, to, that's where you can't be tone deaf and you have to be in touch with what's happening, the context. And that's the, the biggest difference between say where we're anchoring and reporting. It's not like television's television. They're very different. Um, and I, I found for myself, the adjustment to reporting was, was even, there were completely different challenges as opposed to where you're always thinking about what's next. It's very easy to not, to, to not listen. Like it, it sounds so basic, but especially for a reporter, when you're interviewing, um, it is listening as opposed to thinking about what your next question is going to be is listening to what, to what they're saying. There's a great example of Bob Newmeyer was interviewing a Barry Irwin of Team Valor after he won the Kentucky Derby with Animal Kingdom. And Bob Newmeyer was being told in his ear to move on to the next, I think to, to throw to whomever, what reporter was next to talk. And just as Barry was finishing up his interview, he made a comment, something along the lines of Graham motion in that he said, you know, he said, I, I, you know, he's a trainer I can trust or, you know, other, you know, other trainers, this was on, this was live on NBC. He said like other trainers lie to me or something along those lines. Don't, it's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And it would have been very easy. All right. Thanks a lot. Congratulations on the Derby win. Oh, let's go over to such and such with winning. And Bob stopped, Bob Newmeyer stopped right there. And he says, you know, what do you mean? What other trainers lie to you? And it was a testament to his, his, Brilliance as a professional, as a Bob Newmeyer is an incredible storyteller. He's an incredible reporter, and trust and listening. Even though somebody says somebody's telling you to move on, and you following instructions, he knew that to stop, stay right there, and follow up with what he had just said. Because to the viewer at home, if they move right along, like wait, wait a second, what's he talking about? Um, that's something that you know for a big adjustment going from anchoring to reporting that I've I've, I've really had to work hard at. Um, you know, Jason service in the walkover this year with the Kentucky Derby got very emotional when I asked him a question and I kind of moved on to it because somebody like it was a situation that I didn't want to press because he was I gave him a second. He was really getting emotional about the walkover. Um, and, and you always think that you could handle it a little bit better. When is it? You don't want to probe somebody who's crying on live television. What's, what's appropriate with Bob after winning with McKinsey and the horse that meant so much to him, named after one of his best friends growing up, you know, Bob's mother used to refer to, to Brad McKenzie as her other son. And it, he really got choked up. And that was a situation where I, I just let it, I didn't really follow up or push. I just let him kind of gather himself. And when he was ready, he kind of came back and, and, and continued his, continued his train of thought. But it, it's something in the moment that you really have to, to feel, you don't want it to be awkward. And, um, but it's, I don't know that there's any rule in place. Like if this happens, this is what you do. It, it, you really have to be in the moment. You really have to be listening and, and feel that. And it's, it, it's hard. It's, it's a challenge. I do think that those stories and emotions are part of the sport. And that's why this moment stood out to me. Cause I remember watching it and thinking, 
wow, I mean, this goes so deep. There's so much history, so much more to this that I wanted to just briefly bring it up and also ask you if there's ever been a moment in horse racing that you've become emotional because of a horse, because of something that happened. Has a horse ever brought a tear to your eye? Aside from my father's career and the day he retired, well, not the day, well, he, you know, his career ended in an accident, but when he was at Hollywood Park and giving his retirement speech and saying goodbye to the fans, I completely, even thinking about that, that still kind of gets me a little bit. Um, yeah, there's been, there's been moments, um, I'm trying to think, there's certain horses that you just get attached to for a certain reason. Like, I'm not a horseman, you know? Um, I, I got a chance to spend some time with Uncle Mo and, and Mike Rapoli and, and Todd Pletcher so good about you know, people going back to the barn and wanting to see the superstars of the stable. One of the sweetest animals. You talk about American Pharaoh being like a lap dog. Uncle Mo was the same. I was talking to, to Mike and he'd given me some peppermints to give Uncle Mo. And he's like, at some point, he had eaten all the peppermints, but he was still like with his lips on your hand. And Mike's like, dude, you're out of peppermints. And he's letting you know. He, just, he could have taken my whole arm off, you know? And he's just kind of letting me. And this was before he had made his first start because he was the favorite for the Derby and he had that stomach problem. I don't remember the details, but he scratched. And he had, I want to say the King's Bishop was his first race back. And it was my first Travers hosting for NBC. And seeing Uncle Mo on the track after that, I have no idea why. I don't know where it came from. And it never was. It never happened like on the air. But I had to fight for a few seconds because I started to get emotional. Came out of nowhere. And, you know, you're, you're a you're a horse person horse I don't even I don't know what's proper anymore horsewoman horsemen I don't know what the proper you know politically correct so you get it you've been around horses your whole life you you understand that connection where you know I, even though dad was a jockey dad wasn't a horseman and I didn't grow up on a back strip side but the connection to the few animals you've I've really connected with um that's one that that absolutely comes to mind just a, a favorite that you didn't it wasn't about performance on the racetrack or anything they've done in particular just a really cool animal that you got a chance to spend some time around and all of a sudden there was this strange attachment. Now, I actually have many follow-ups just from what you just told me, but uh, I didn't want to make this interview as much about your dad. You say your dad wasn't a horseman? Not necessarily. He wasn't. Um, Richard Migliori, see, he has horses, you know. I mean, that that is, his, he is a horseman. Not every jockey is a is necessarily a horseman. You can be brilliant at what you do in the saddle and being able to coax a horse to do whatever it is that they need to do in order to win, but that doesn't mean a jockey is a, a horseman per se. He could ride a horse and come back and tell the trainer, you know, maybe it's equipment or blinkers or this or that, or I, he feels a little bit, I can tell. But I think every jockey can pretty much do that. I don't know that my dad, there was ever a, I don't think he was ever the type that would, unless he was working a horse showing up at a barn just to see a horse in particular, I don't know that he was ever the, ever that attached as opposed to laser focus on riding, keeping his weight down and winning dad. Dad was like, you know, he was kind of like a machine that way. Um, and I think that's probably a misconception that everybody thinks that, you know, most trainers, trainers are horsemen, not all jockeys are horsemen. And that's not a knock. That's just an, it's an observation. So what do you think makes jockeys good at their job? What do you think sets a great rider apart from the rest then? Chris McCarron once said that the, the 
priority of any jockey, first and foremost, because the presence of the weight on the horse's back, that alone introduces a certain level of a, is a hindrance. Chris said that his job was to be to pr provide the least amount of hindrance to a racehorse. Stay out of their way. In, in other words, let them do what they do best. I think that certain riders are very good at just not forcefully. And my dad was a very physical, physical rider, Richard Migliori, who we mentioned, you know, they call him the MIG, you know, is very aggressive, uh, you know, but being able to uh, get a, a horse to do things that they don't necessarily do that well, I think is what separates the greats from the good, whether it's an ability to relax a horse before a race, um, uh, in the gate, you know, why is it that some go, you know, the Patrick Valenzuela's David Flores, is so good out of the gate. It's like a horse would break like a length faster for them than anybody else for whatever reasons. Uh, that clock in their head, you know, some, you know, unreal that, you know, they don't have, you're not driving a car. You don't have a rear view mirror. You don't have any gauges. It's all feel. It's, it's in your head. It's through experience. It's feeling, you know, how much gas is in the tank and the horse underneath you. Um, and instincts, confidence goes a long way with riders. There's some riders that when they're going bad, my dad's told me about losing streaks. He could be on a three to five shot before the race. He's like, I know I'm in trouble. Like, I know I'm in trouble where it seems like every move you make is the wrong one. And then you get in those winning streaks and it seems like every decision you make is the right one. And you're winning with horses that shouldn't be winning. And before a race, you get a leg up in the paddock and you're like, I'm going to get my picture taken. Confidence is huge with with riders um and you know there's some guys that you look at in the stretch of a big race of a grade one of a seven-figure person you look at one jockey versus the other and you're like look you give me that guy you know every time and those are the, the those difference makers um that are at their best in the clutch those are that to me that that's what makes that's what makes a great rider that confidence that you mentioned, that seems a bit similar then to being a good broadcaster, having the confidence to do your craft day in and out and know that you're good enough to do it, right? It's a very astute observation. I think that you know, confidence is, is not arrogance and there's a fine line because there's, you know, for the viewer, consciously or subconsciously pick up on that very quickly and it's very irritating and it's like change the channel as quickly as you possibly can um the confidence that you is every bit as important as is you you know your preparation and the more you prepare the more confident you're going to be the quickest way for me to feel less if i don't feel prepared you're i don't know i don't feel as confident absolutely not um but you you need you need to know that you know that you're good enough to be there and you belong there there's reason you're there and you have to yourself absolutely that's a huge part of it I, you know there's i think it's a, it's an awful feeling getting ready to go on air for a big show it's like maybe you woke up on the wrong side of the bed you know you don't feel your very best that's a brutal feeling and the whole morning and afternoon like you're trying to find it you know, where, you know you're, you're trying to find that space that you're at your most comfortable and you're breathing and that pit isn't in your stomach and you're just you're very present and wow, this is an amazing event I'm going to be a part of as opposed to I didn't sleep as well last night. I don't feel like I have a grip on this story as well as I possibly should. I don't know what, you know, um, and that's, you know, there's a, uh, there's no, if you could 
put that in a bottle and sell it, you'd be a gazillionaire. But it's a matter of, of process and, and finding it. But most of it, as you brought up, goes back to just that, that confidence and believing in yourself is going to go a long way in having and being having a sustained, good, positive career. Have you ever had any sleepless nights before a big event? Now, I personally know I've had one before no, my suck. first screen test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suck at sleeping uh, on the road. Like, I, I suck at sleeping on the road. Um, I, uh, that, that's been a real, that's been tricky. And I think there's many occasions where I wake up and like really excited. This has happened like the Kentucky Derby the last couple of years. I know I've had maybe, maybe four hours sleep and I wake up and I normally I can go right back to sleep, but like night before the Derby, you're, Oh God, now the wheels are turning and I'm supposed to be up in like three or four hours, but okay, I'm going to go back to sleep. And you can tell like what, you're not going back to sleep. You're, you're now you're awake. Even though now you're going to be exhausted and you've got like the longest day in front of you. I'm convinced Kentucky Derby Day is like 42 hours long. Um, it's a long, long, long day. And that, that the excitement, it, that's a negative sort of like the, the sleep. I would, I would give just about anything for eight full hours before every big event that I get to cover the following day. And it very rarely happens. Um, and, and then I'll make the mistake of, you know, because I can – in order to turn it off, I need to focus on something else. So I'll flip on the TV and I will, that will put me back to sleep normally. But night before Derby, there's all that programming, you know, the, the, the dawn at the downs that before the sun's even up, all the news stations are already out there. Now, now that now I'm really screwed. Like now I'm screwed. Now I'm ever, they're already talking to connections and there's you're now you're in Derby mode and I feel like a sprinter who's being asked to run a mile and a half Belmont. Like how the hell am I going to get the distance because I'm not you know, I'm not, I, I didn't sleep enough. But the adrenaline of the day, adrenaline of the day carries you, you through in the end. But yeah, that's always, that's a sleeping on the road is kind of tricky for me. Now for all the listeners here, we're on a video call and Lafitte was pretending to be asleep or trying to show how he would be sleeping. <laughs> um, let's divert back to when you were working at HRTV, merely because I think it's safe to say that a fair few of the people that you've worked with there have gone on or are currently in very prominent positions within the horse racing industry. Who did you work with the most whilst there and who would you say has had the biggest influence on your career? I worked a ton with Jeff Siegel, who I understood the broad, the broad strokes of the big days and the great ones. And when I went to HRTV in the early 2000s, I was a big day Saturday horse racing fan. Um, working with Jeff Siegel, I learned like the, the bare bones, the, the, you know, the, taught me about the claiming game, taught me how it all works, the significance of racing through, you know, the stuff that we don't necessarily pay as much attention to when we're just preparing for a Breeders' Cup Triple Crown, that kind of thing. I learned so much from Jeff in those years working with him about the game. This is one of the sharpest handicappers I've ever been around and has been in Southern California for years and years and years. This is a guy that, you know, before you didn't have XBTV, you couldn't see the workouts. They weren't being filmed. They weren't being published. Jeff Siegel, like I remember he had hired like some dude and had him on the roof at Santa Anita shooting workouts for him. There was nothing he wasn't going to know about a race that he was going to not necessarily bet himself, but have his opinion and give that selection out. He has a lot of pride in his work and learned as much about the game from Jeff Siegel 
as anyone else. Uh, Amy Zimmerman, who gave me the opportunity to keep getting those reps. Um, while my first opportunity was in New York, what I got to do at HRTV was work through all of the, just, just from a mechanic standpoint, repetition, repetition, repetition. I would have my first shift that I would work there. They were, there were like two or three of us on air. It was a, a one person. You didn't have a co-host. It was one person. And you'd be on either from like, I don't know, I think it was like nine in the morning until like, like three and then like a three to 10 shift. I had like a five day a week, three to 10 shift, a pack of past performances, a stack like this and just reps, 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 reps. That's the hardest thing. It's like the chicken and the egg when it comes to a broadcaster. It's you need the reps to get better, but you need the job to get the reps, but you can't get the job without the experience. Right. So that gave me an opportunity to continue to work improve, get all that experience while in the early day, like nobody could see it. We weren't even on dish network yet, let alone, you know, direct TV or anything. We were operating in front of next to no one, but if you're going to suck, you might as well do it while nobody's watching. So, you know, that's what all of, you know, those early years were really, were really all about. And in broadcasting, the crew behind the scene doesn't often get as much recognition as the people that are in front of the camera. So, I wanted to do a little bit of different style handicapping. If you have to pick a person, AKA a horse, that we should all be looking out for that is behind the scene, for example, some of the producers that we have working on the Fox shows, who should we all know about? Wow. Um, Terrence Theegee does an incredible job with us at Naira on the Fox shows, as does Evan Schwartz, as does Josh Abelson. Our producers are really, are really solid. And as I'd mentioned, you've been there now, you know, how much goes into those shows. And if you see, you know, how many people are normally involved with a national broadcast and the crew, the job that the television department does in, in New York, it's, it's, I don't know how they pull it together. I don't know how they're doing it. And even now during this coronavirus pandemic and while racing is on in front of more eyeballs than it ever has been on NBCSN, on Fox one, Fox two, <clears throat> and we have a skeleton crew, of a skeleton crew, relatively speaking. It's it's a handful of people pulling this off. And it takes incredible communication. The producers are in the forefront and the glue in that regard, putting that map together, that rundown together. Our producers do an, an incredible job at, at, at Fox and the Naira production. Um, uh, whereas the, the crew, the, you know, getting ready for the Triple Crown races and the Breeders' Cups working with, with Rob Highland, who is, I mean, you know, he, I think the best thing I can all I can say about Rob is that everybody on that team will run through a brick wall for him, for him, that they just will. Um, everybody wants to put forth their very best effort because that's what, you know, excellence is, is expected. And so detail oriented, um, there's 9 million people on those NBC crews getting ready for the Derby and how he coordinates all of it. I will never know. It's incredible to watch. There was a clip on uh, social media going around with, with Rob as a producer and Drew Eskoff, our director, who also does Sunday Night Football, who's he's, he's legendary, and them working together and calling the shots and picking the shots. And it's more, it's, again, justifies really awesome. But I was like, I was like just blown away watching them in this different language they speak amongst themselves communicating. If I could, I don't know how to find it. We'll try to find it. You have to see this. What's going on in the truck during a, a moment like that. 
I've had the, the privilege to, and then going back to Amy Zimmerman and the opportunity she gave me at HRTV and what an influence she's been on my work. Um, I've had an opportunity and very fortunate not working with just some of the most talented people in the business, but just really great people as well. And, and what Tony Alabato has done now at, at Niren Fox and the efforts that he's put in to keep us, to keep this engine going in a time like this where racing does have an opportunity and we're doing the work that we are on, you know, and spending as much time on national television as we have over the last you know, several weeks. Well, having spent time in a truck myself, I know what you mean with the fact that they do speak an entirely different language. I remember my first day in there thinking, I have no clue what they're talking about. And it was amazing. So we definitely have to find that video. I've seen some other video clips, actually. I'm pretty sure that was Amy Zimmerman posting some online because it's it's just an incredible atmosphere looking at what they do inside. It's magic. It is absolute magic. Now, to close off the show with so many experienced players as well as new fans engaging with horse racing, what would be the key thing you would like to say to everyone watching the horse racing show America's Day at the Races on Fox Sports? As far as a horse racing fan or maybe somebody that's not as familiar? Well, in a way, both. Because we are people like me, other people, we are all tuning in, but there's also new people tuning in. So it's a bit of a different one. In a way, you need to appeal to everyone here. What would you say? It's very difficult for somebody who's not that appealing to begin with. Um, conveying that message, trying to, we're a distraction. And while we say this is a great distraction for our viewers, this is, it's, it's more therapeutic for us. Sitting next to Gary, that we get to feel normal for a few hours. And I think that it's at the same time, you, you can't be tone deaf. You can't just be the distraction. You have to be aware of everything else that's going on. And I don't care how many times our viewers have heard it. They're going to continue to hear it because it's important. What somebody wants to know right now, I don't have my baseball. I don't have my basketball. Why is that still happening? How is that still sport still running? We need to continue to revisit that topic that this isn't simply just capitalizing on an opportunity. This isn't just some money grab. No, there's an ecosystem here and the horses that are involved whether they're racing or not, they still need to be taken care of. They, they're athletes. You can't just like, you know, put them in their stall and maybe, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. You know this better than anybody. They still have to exercise. They have to be out on the track. And there are a lot of people involved to take care of these horses. That's why it's so important. And to continue that ecosystem going so that the people taking care of the horses, that they're looked after, that they're compensated, and that this isn't basketball. This isn't football. There aren't going to be 70,000 people in the stands every single day. Horse racing is operated without fans for a long, long time at the racetrack. 90% of the handle is from off-track betting. It's through ADWs. Um, the jockeys that, you know, they're, the horses, they're, they're not at risk. And so the riders themselves, if they're willing to be there and following all of the protocol, well, then it's not making a, it, there's no added danger in that regard. I think the, the, reward outweighs the risk in this in this regard and it's proven sustainable as you've seen at oaklawn at tampa bay at gulfstream park and i hope other racetracks can continue to follow because there is that ecosystem and it all goes back to the horses that's what i want everybody to understand that's watching well i couldn't agree with you more i'm hoping that we can all get back to racing soon. I'll be behind closed doors, but really continue supporting those ecosystems. Thank you so much, Lafitte. Oh, absolute pleasure, Naomi. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi.
I certainly enjoyed making this episode, especially discussing the Saratoga experience that really stood out to me just because it makes us all dream of that summer Saratoga getaway. And learning that there has been a horse that got a bit of an emotional reaction out of Lafitte, namely the mighty Uncle Mo on Traverse Day, as well as discussing what it really takes to be a live broadcaster including the ups and downs and the mental pressure. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the In The Money Team podcast on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, so you don't miss our next episode. Do not forget to tell your friends to tune in. And of course, for questions or suggestions or just to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from all of you guys. Do not hesitate to reach out at Naomi Tucker on Twitter or send me an email via Naomi Tucker at live.nl. Tucker with two Ks if this is the first time you're listening. Goodbye, good night, good day, wherever you are and hopefully speak soon. 